You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Please sit back and enjoy episode 13, Beauty and Neuroaesthetics. Unless you're driving, in which case, please stay upright and alert to things on the road. Many people think beauty is something ephemeral, subject to the arbitrary whims of individual taste and cultural trends. But philosophers have been studying beauty and analyzing it for thousands of years under the name aesthetics, and some of the first studies in scientific psychology were about our perceptions of beauty. So, Jim, is it possible to study beauty scientifically? That's a good question. You know, beauty is one of those things that everybody uh, thinks is sort of hard to study scientifically. And it suffers from one of the uh, same public relations problems that happiness does. Like there's a lot of happiness research, but a lot of people just can't imagine how you could possibly study it with rigorous science. Um, But studying beauty, and that's sometimes called uh, aesthetics, it's actually one of the first things to ever be studied when psychology uh, became more of a science and less of a kind of philosophy. So yeah, you can you can uh, there are established scientific means for studying beauty. Isn't it that some like everybody has their own opinions on what exactly is beautiful and what isn't? Yeah, people do disagree on what they think is beautiful. Um, but even if they didn't agree on anything, we could still study that with science because we could we could try to see what kind of types people were perhaps or what kinds of things predicted what kinds of differences in people's perceptions of beauty but it actually turns out that there um, are a lot of agreements people agree a lot on what's beautiful so how exactly do you measure it well the easiest way to measure uh, the beauty of something is just to ask people how beautiful it is and usually in psychology we do this with a uh, what's called a Likert scale so it's it's what you often see on surveys where you have to uh, rate something usually on a five or ten point scale how much you agree with it so you might say uh, how beautiful is it you know between one and five or something like that and you can get pretty far just by studying that so using these Likert scales is is it actually accurate do we do we get a good sense of something's beauty yeah that's tough so um, scientific psychology has a skepticism about just asking people what's going on in their own minds and that's really legitimate because people, uh, will sometimes be wrong about what they think. I know that sounds a little weird, but it's 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 true. Um, and there are instances where people's reports of what they think is beautiful are wrong, or at least we can question them. So there's one example, uh, a really interesting study. They asked people what color of stereo they like better. This was like in the era of boom boxes. And they showed them a yellow boom box and a black boom box. And they said, which one do you like better? And they people said, the yellow one. The yellow one looks better. But then at the end of the experiment, they said, okay, thank you for participating. You can have one of these boom boxes, take whichever one you want. And even though most people picked yellow for which one they thought they liked better, they actually took home the black one. So there's this idea, you know, in psychology that you should watch what people do and not what they say. And, you know, that's maybe overly simplistic, but in general, that boom box study shows a good example of it, right? That what people say is their belief and their opinion um, There's this idea that how they behave when they are making decisions in their best, you know, what they believe is their best interest, uh, you get more of a realistic insight into what's going on in their heads. You know, when you say that we're studying beauty, I've always thought of it as something related to faces. 
beautiful humans. Um, but I'm seeing that it's it's bigger than that. It's actually beautiful objects as well, right? So yes, yeah. Aesthetics is for all kinds of stuff, like landscapes and paintings and art, and and but as well as like the beauty of a person or something like that. And then some people even study like mathematical beauty, like the beauty of a proof or. Um, sometimes you'll say, oh, that's a beautiful study, even in like science, right? Somebody comes up with a really clever way to get at something. Um, but yeah, you know, when we study it, we have to look at, the best thing to do is to look at lots of measures and hope that all those things sort of conclude on the same thing. We sort of triangulate. So you might ask people how beautiful something is, but you could also ask them how much they'd pay for it. Um, another is how much you think other people would like it or how much would your friends like it? Because um, sometimes, particularly with sensitive subjects, if you ask people what their friends think, they give a more accurate depiction of what they think than if you ask them what they think. What? <laughs> so if I if if I ask you like um, like uh, how racist are you or how you know something like that, you know you'll not you. Of course, you're a wonderful no. person who's always truthful. Yes. But you know, you ask like your average uh, participant a sensitive question, they might say something that would make them look better. But if you ask them about the people around them or most people or their friends, they will uh, assume that most people are like them. And they will give an answer that is true for them. It's actually more true for them than if you ask them about themselves directly. That is wild. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't even know how to explain that. I think my brain just exploded. But I, I, I'm familiar with a lot of the experiments that are done on attractiveness. Yeah. And one other metric that they've used is eye gaze, right? So you can measure how long people are looking at or where their eyes go to, in particular, uh, this is a lot of that is done on the female form, for example. So is this also something that... Is. Yeah. So you can tr um, another way to behaviorally look at how much people like an image is you can see how long they're looking at it. Like you could just ask someone, "Oh, just click through these pictures," and you can just measure how long how long it takes them to click next. <laughs> you know, that's like a behavioral study. But you can also do eye tracking. So um, eye tracking is where you have a machine that uh, uses um, vision technology to look at your eyes and uh, find out what point of the picture you're looking at at every moment. And um, that's useful. I mean, you don't really know how beautiful people think it is, but you can get an idea of where people are focusing their attention. So when people look at other people, eye tracking studies show that people tend to look at faces, right? All, yeah, most, it, most of the time. And they look at eyes, right? Yeah, especially the eyes. eyes. Um, and you can see, if you look up online, you can see maps of like eye, where the eyes go uh, with certain images. And they've done this with faces, but also with masterpieces of art and that kind of thing. So you said people tend to agree on what is beautiful. Why do you think then that there is the expression beauty is in the eye of the beholder? Well, we live in social societies and um, because we're constantly dealing with other people, what's really important isn't what makes us all the same, but what makes us different when you're talking about navigating our social world. So um, we just pay attention to how people are different, what we call in psychology individual differences. But when you look at uh, people across cultures and across people, there's a big agreement on what's pretty. And this is uh, more clear with uh, like non-art versus art, right? So you might like one TV show and I like a different one, but um, there are some things that nobody finds interesting. So let's say the particular pattern of raindrops on your windshield when it starts raining. Like nobody gets really f fascinated with that unless they have a mental disorder where they just see meaning and everything. But 
like somebody might say, oh, oh, rain, it's kind of pretty, but nobody like looks really carefully at the exact way that the raindrops fell for the first few seconds, right? It's just not very interesting to us. We sort of perceive it as, as random or like static on television. We don't, nobody gets really fascinated with static on TV, even though there's lots of information there in the sense of like, uh, there's always a new image and it's never been seen in the universe before and it's part of the universe's cosmic background radiation. Uh, you know, nobody wants to watch static. You know, and, you know, people like different kinds of music, but it is telling that music is very different from just random noise and every single culture uh, has some kind of music. What about for visual arts? Sure. So uh, people everywhere seem to like the same kinds of images. So, for example, in landscapes, they found that people tend to prefer views that would be a good place to camp out. Uh, what that means is that um, they tend to like places that are high up. You get a good view. There's water visible, maybe animals. Ideally, it's covered. You know, the kind of place where if you're hiking, you would like look out and take a picture and say, wow, that's really gorgeous. Um, our minds have uh, evolved to find that pretty because um, it's, it's our minds telling us this is a good place to build a home, right? So there's water and there's, you know, access to resources and you can see danger coming and all that kind of thing. Uh, so it's kind of cool that, you know, for landscapes, we have like big agreements on beauty. And then we also, you know, like you said, with like, uh, beauty in people, there is, um, a good deal of agreement on what kind of people we find attractive. And this is, uh, true for both men and women going for both sexes. So there's, men have no trouble, even if, even a heterosexual man has no trouble knowing which other men are attractive, right? Like <laughs> if they see their girlfriend or daughter chatting with one person versus another, they're very good at knowing which one's more of a threat based on their attractiveness. They're, I'm not saying they're attracted to the man, but they can tell when a hunk walks in and they know that's more of a threat to their, you know, their date or whatever than if some schlub, <laughs> you know. I think they know very well that um, that Brad Pitt is a better looking man than Danny DeVito. You know, there's, they're just lying if they don't uh, recognize that. I, I, I love art and I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of, of art and all, all lots of different genres. But certainly if you've ever been in an art gallery, you've seen pieces that don't resonate with you. And there's there are certainly individuals who like very strange or weird art that I would argue very few people actually like as well. So how do you explain that? I think, yeah, you're totally right. And um, when I talk about, you know, the, our, our evolution and how we like certain landscapes or whatever, I don't, I'm not trying to say that culture doesn't have any influence. Culture is extraordinarily powerful. And it can override almost all of the instincts that we have, right? But what I think of it is like it takes more energy to get people to like stuff that's sort of against their genes. <laughs> Um, so there are, but you know, there are like, say, let's look at other things that are evolved, like the desire for sex or eating, right? We have monks who don't have any sex. We have people with anorexia who won't eat. Um, so like cultural and, and, uh, you know, mental problems or whatever, they can, they can push people to like or dislike things that are sort of against the way we are predisposed to like them. But you'll notice that non-popular arts, we talk about fine arts, um, often require a lot of training and that's enculturation. When you go to art school or you take art classes, that is training and enculturation that are trying to get you to in a particular aesthetic. Um, and very rarely 
um, does someone just like, you know, fall to, you know, fall to tears crying in front of a very beautiful, but very abstract painting, like even like abstract, very abstract art is often something that it takes, it takes training to like. Yeah, well, you know, go to any museum, like the National Art Gallery, and there's all different kinds of pictures, different genres, some that yeah. really, I would say, don't resonate with the average individual. So Right. Yeah. The, but keep in mind that museums are curated by art elites, people who are fine artists. But you, when you're looking at aesthetics as a human condition, like as a psychology thing and trying to understand people in general, fine art, as we understand it in the Western world, is vanishingly small, right? It's yeah. almost it's almost non-existent. It, in fact, I the way I look at it is that it's uh, you can sort of ignore it as like measurement error, right? The vast majority of art out there that has ever been created has been people creating art for people in their community, for like gifts for loved ones, community rituals, things like that. And even if you look at the modern world. With you know a broad definition of art, most art is are things like advertisements you know, um, like graphic design and trying to catch your attention with this or that, TV commercials, um, and then popular music and TV shows. And uh, all that's not really fine art. And and those things match much more uh, cleanly with what we know from uh, human nature kinds of stuff than the strange art that you might see in a museum. You wonder, like, is that even art, right? <laughs> One thing I have, I, and I know I've read this before, about how paintings will have a higher value if there's actually people in it. Is that, does that relate in any way to this? Like this, yeah. the concept of beauty and, and aesthetics as being, uh, we would deem something as more beautiful, more valuable if it had a, like a, a face in it as opposed to just a landscape. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. So uh, having people in the work of art or in anything really makes it much more acceptable. Like we love people. <laughs> Uh, and I wanted to get at this scientifically. I wanted to get some numbers on this. So I did a study where I got uh, an art history student, actually, and I didn't tell her what my hypothesis was. The hypothesis was that there would be a lot, of, a lot of paintings with people in them, right? But I didn't tell her because I didn't want her to be biased. I just said, go get a big book of world art, you know, out of the library or whatever. And she got this huge book. And I told her to go through and look at every single image in the book and say whether there was a person in it or not and how many people were in it. And there were 432 images in the book. And of those, only 95 had no people in them. Um, and that's that's like 23%. And there were 337 that featured at least one person, you know. And um, so, you know, and we also compared it to animals. There are way more people than other animals too. So it's, you know, not just like living things. People People like looking at people. Um, and also, interestingly, there are more paintings with low numbers of people than high. So one person, two people, three people. After you get to like three people, it drops off pretty quickly. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for this. One might be uh, the obvious one is that more people are harder to paint, right? <laughs> it's just harder to make sculptures of, a, you know, a thousand, a thousand people or something. Um, but the other thing is that it's often more relatable to have uh, only a couple of people. Um, when you think of like a conversation size, you really can't effectively have a conversation with more than about eight people uh, if everyone's contributing, right? So, um, you know, that's very speculative, but it appears that, you know, when you're looking at paintings that are, and this was a world painting book. This wasn't just 
uh, you know, Western art, although I'm sure there was a bias. Um, but we didn't find uh, any real significant difference for different time periods or different cultures or anything like that. So, you know, even, even when we're looking at paintings, we love people. So this is interesting. It speaks to, again, like what we feel, what we are attracted to, what we find is beautiful and the compellingness of, of certain pieces of art. And this reminds me of your book, right? You Didn't you write a book that kind of dealt with this concept? Yeah, I wrote a book called Riveted, and it's about why we find anything compelling. So it's from beauty to, but also like car wrecks and horror movies and things that you wouldn't really call beautiful, but you can't tear your eyes away from, right? Even unpleasant things. So that book was about the underlying psychology of everything we find compelling from sports, art, religion, uh, and all that. To help us further discuss the science of beauty, we talked to Dr. Anjan Chatterjee, a professor from the University of Pennsylvania who studies neuroaesthetics. Dr. Chatterjee, welcome. You must get a lot of strange reactions when you tell people that you study the neuroscience of beauty. I do get a lot of strange reactions. Uh, people typically think uh, correctly that this is a domain uh, for years that has been within the purview of people in the humanities, uh, particularly in philosophy, our history, not that many people appreciate that there is both a psychology of aesthetics that probably started in the, uh, truly started in the late 19th century, and then uh, neuroscience of aesthetics that's really maybe about 20 years old. I think a lot of people think about art. Art's the first thing that comes to mm -hmm. mind, music and paintings and all, you know, literature and that kind of thing. But we also find people beautiful or not, or landscapes. And uh, do you think that we've always got an aesthetic evaluation running in our heads, evaluating everything? I think we do uh, always have an aesthetic evaluation running in our head. And later when we talk about the science of this, uh, we have evidence that people's brains are responding to beauty and faces, uh, regardless of um, what they're doing, even if they're not being asked a question about is someone attractive, that there are neural responses to how attractive people are that's, that seems to be going on in the background all the time. Yeah, that's probably a very primitive brain function that it's, you can't just shut off by thinking about polar bears or whatever. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, you know, you might think polar bears are very attractive. So. <laughs> right. Now, you're in particular a neuroscientist, right? Yes. So, so um you know, we can think of maybe a psychology study of what kind of music do people like or this or that. But uh, how do you, what are the methods that neuroscientists might use to uh, solve problems of aesthetics? Yeah, so the methods that neuroscientists use are very similar to the methods that anybody who studies cognitive neuroscience uses. Because I would say that neuroaesthetics is a domain within cognitive neuroscience. Um, so just to review them, uh, uh, behavioral experiments the same way psychologists do, neuroscientists do as well. Uh, having a, a rich understanding of the behavior under question uh, is critical to interpreting the neuroscience of aesthetics. And I think this is true in cognitive neuroscience in general. You can't have a decent cognitive neuroscience without a decent psychology. So so just let's unpack a behavioral yeah. study just for the uh, novices on the, in the audience. So um. Just like a physicist might measure photons hitting a uh, detector or something like that, uh, psychologists will often bring people uh, into a laboratory or sometimes observe them in their natural environment and will make recordings of some and create some kind of data about what they do, how fast they respond or 
their pulse rate or uh, or the, or interview them about something. So um, you know that's a, that's what we mean by a behavioral experiment. Yeah. Right, and and we can think of in aesthetics within that uh, one can use surveys, uh, and then you can do more controlled experiments uh, where you're showing people certain stimuli and then measuring their responses. It can be reaction times, it can be motoric responses, it can be accuracy measures. Uh, so the uh, I think the the general armamentarium of behavioral experiments uh, and observations that psychologists use, uh, neuroscientists use as well. Right. But then you also have brain scans and things like that. Do you do that kind of work? We do that kind of work. Uh, and so to review the methods, the basic methods in cognitive neuroscience and neuroaesthetics, uh, the one that is used most commonly would be uh, brain scans, uh, particularly MRI, uh, functional MRI images. Uh, and what that is is that people are lying in a scanner and they're shown the same kind of stimuli that we might show in a behavioral experiment. Uh, and as they're doing tasks or not doing tasks, depending on how the experiment is set up, uh, the blood flow in their brain is being measured. And it turns out to be a, um, a physiologic fact that if there is increased neural activity in a part of the brain, there are also changes in blood flow in that area. And with changes of blood flow, it's specifically the alterations in hemoglobin and deoxyhemoglobin as the neurons, when they're firing, they're extracting more oxygen. That has a magnetic signature, and that's what that, the, um, the MRI scanner is, uh, is identifying, is these changes in signal and hemoglobin. But we use that as a proxy for neuronal firing underneath that. Yeah, I, I think that's such a neat idea that, the, you know, the brain is a really hungry organ. It, it consumes a lot of sugar and a lot of oxygen. And, right. And uh, <clears throat> you know, we can tell which part of the brain is busy by how much it eats. And I, I think that's a, a really yeah. cool thing. That, so tell me about some of, the, some of the findings. What are some neat things that uh, people have found with neuroaesthetics? People always ask about, uh, consistency. You know, so the usual thing is, is beauty in the eye of the beholder, suggesting that there's a lot of variability. Uh, if you look for how consistently people respond, people are the most consistent with faces. There's a lot of agreement in which faces look attractive. That is uh, true for viewers of both genders okay. um, and tends to be true across cultures and also tends to be true uh, with infants. So infants will look at faces that adults um, judged to be more attractive, will spend more time looking at those faces than others. Wow. So, so that seems to be quite consistent. After that, landscapes tend to have a certain amount of consistency, uh, close to faces. Uh, and the least consistent are artworks, that people's judgments mm. of artwork have, uh, have the least consistency. And in between artworks and landscapes are architectural spaces, both interiors and exteriors. So it looks like artifacts, things created by humans, you know, particularly artworks and, and architectural spaces, there's less consistency. And then when you get to these natural kinds like landscapes and faces, that there's the most consistency. Oh, neat. Right? So there's that sort of thing. Uh, but even within that, uh, there is a way in which our response to beauty seems to really uh, get modulated. So uh, one big effect is the effect of context. And 
a, a good example of a study that was done with this uh, is it was an, uh, uh, an fMRI study that was done in Copenhagen now some years ago where people were shown images of abstract images. And in one condition, they're told these are generated by a computer, some random algorithm. In another, they're told that these are hanging in a fancy gallery in Copenhagen. Okay. They're looking exactly the same thing. The percept coming in through their eyes to their brain is exactly the same. All they're given is a, a framing story that's different. When people rate these paintings, if it's coming from a gallery, they actually say they're more beautiful, they like them more. And it's not, it, it, here's the fascinating thing, that it is not just that somehow they think that's the right answer, so they should give this. In their brain, within the reward center, so particularly within uh, uh, an area called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and um, the medial orbitofrontal cortex, these are classic areas uh, in which where our brains respond to rewards. You see greater activation in those areas when people are think these same images are coming from a gallery. So here you have a situation where just they're looking at exactly the same thing, but their brain is responding with more of a reward and a pleasure response, right? So it's not a cognitive thing where they're saying, okay, you know, this this person wants me, the, the right answer is to say, I like it more because it comes from a gallery. I actually like it more. Right. right? And so that's a kind of interesting finding of the way in which, um, the way in which context and our semantic systems interacts with our emotional systems and our reward systems. So uh, are there any uh, practical applications of this kind of research? There's research that we're doing that has practical consequences. Um, and I'll give you a couple examples. Going back to this question of faces and our automatic responses to faces, we've also started to look at the other side of that, which is people with facial uh, disfigurement. Uh, that that can be things like cleft palate or people that have had scars or burns, um, uh, various sorts of anomalies uh, that uh, people have. And what we're finding is that Unfortunately, we tend to make all sorts of negative attributes to people with disfigured faces. Uh, in, and so people with minor uh, disfigurements are regarded as less intelligent, less trustworthy, less competent, less hardworking, uh, you know, on and on. Uh, and we've also shown uh, if you use implicit association tests, which are these tests that try to uh, assess the kinds of biases people have. So these have been used in race, race studies and gender bias studies. We're finding the same kind of effects uh, with minor facial disfigurements. Um, and then uh, we've just completed an fMRI study that is uh, under review right now, showing that there is a part of this middle part of the frontal lobe so part of the anterior cingulate and ventromedial prefrontal cortex that is actually deactivated. So there's less neural activity when people are looking at disfigured faces. Now, why is that interesting? It turns out that that part of the brain is engaged when people have empathic responses to other people. So in various kinds of empathy and mentalizing experiments where people are trying to 
feel and experience what someone else is feeling, that's the area that's activated. The fact that this gets deactivated suggests that there is a kind of, it might be a neural marker of the lack of empathy or dehumanizing other people. Right? And so this notion that just from surface appearances that we have this propensity uh, to maybe dehumanize certain categories, in this case, disfigured faces, uh, especially now where in the U.S. at least, there are so many divisions, cultural divisions, and the, the sort of uh, kind of, a, there's a sense of a fractured society where uh, this notion of dehumanizing, I think, ends up, ends up being a really important one and trying to understand what the mechanisms are behind that, uh, which might have really big time um, uh, practical consequences. In our behavioral studies, we find that this bias is more pronounced among men than women, that, that men just are more responsive to the physical features of, uh, mm. of people they're looking at, and so the bias is also uh, more pronounced. That's something worth knowing uh, in the sense that most, uh, it is still the case that, that probably the majority of, for example, hiring decisions are made by men. Uh, in men of goodwill, it's worth men knowing this so that they can put a check on themselves when they're in the process of hiring people, if not realizing that some little scar on someone's face might actually bias them against the person independent of their... That's a great point. So, you know, I, I, I love learning about uh, bias and stuff so that I can counter it myself. I yeah. remember reading about um, that men, that women tend to get out of the way of men on the, on the sidewalk. Right. And, and that is something that it blew my mind because it was something I was benefiting from my whole life, but never, never even knew yeah. it, you know, and now I'm making a conscious effort to get out of the way of women. When a woman's coming toward me, I get out of the way, yeah. <laughs> do my little part. You right, know? right. If our listeners want to learn more about the science of beauty, both from psychology and neuroscience, what would you recommend that they uh, look into? Uh, well, I wrote a book called The Aesthetic Brain. All right. Well, you got to buy that. <laughs> the Aesthetic Brain. Right. Uh, and so that was, uh, uh, it was largely designed for an intelligent audience. It wasn't written for other scientists. So I think that would be a good place to start. Uh, there's a, uh, uh, and I'll also put in a plug for, uh, I don't know if people, if your audience knows the five book series where people I don't even know about the five okay book so this series. is this is something that uh, everybody who listens to this who presumably likes books and likes reading <laughs> should know about uh, which is there's a series uh, on the web if you just uh, type in five books and then some topic uh, where uh, where people are interviewed uh, for what they think are the five best books for a domain and it can be anything it can be political theory it can be uh on the stoics it can be on humor which you might find of interest um uh, but i did do one of these for neuroaesthetics uh within the last year and so if you type five books in my name you'll see uh uh, uh you'll see at least what i recommended in that which was really about the kind of uh history of this very uh, young field. So picking books that would, would help with that. Great. Well, uh, we are uh, uh, both thrilled here that there is a uh, science to study this kind of stuff. And uh, thanks so much for being on the show. 
This episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University, and made possible, in part, by Occam's Razors, giving your scientific theories smooth, close shaves since the 1300s. Theme music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.